This is the Cop Think Podcast, where we answer the question, why do the police do what they do? I'm Brian Casey, and uh, today is Chris Clemens. Chris, why don't you tell me your, how you introduce yourself? Uh, usually I say I walk fast and carry a clipboard, then people don't bug me. But uh, I'm a suicidologist, a researcher. Uh, I've spent years as a, a paramedic. Uh, I spent 14 years, five months, six days, two minutes, three seconds as a firefighter before I realized that uh, uh, you need an arm that's not broken to, to do that. Uh, and uh, I'm a person who runs a support group for people bereaved by suicide and uh, who's uh, a survivor myself, having lost my wife, my brother, uh, who was a law enforcement student at Century College at the time of his death and uh, 10 colleagues in public safety to suicide. So did that, um, so that, so with the loss of your wife and your brother to suicide, how did that uh, change your view of it? Uh, well, it's in, you know, you look at what you know now, uh, uh, and how ignorant perhaps you were, um, you know, I, uh, embarrassingly, uh, I would be that person in the ambulance that we'd get dispatched to a medical call and it would be somebody who's suicidal or behavioral health in nature and it'd be like, Oh, just another uh, BS call, right? Uh, we need like a real call or something worthy. Uh, and really after my wife died of suicide, I, that reframed everything for me. Uh, I wouldn't wish that on anybody though. So I, I get frustrated when people are ignorant like I was, but I also um, don't want them to have gone through what I did to understand it the way I do, if that makes sense. It does make sense. As a matter of fact, even law enforcement agencies, some of the ones that are uh, most assertive, aggressive, accomplished regarding officer suicide prevention. They did it because of their own painful experiences with it, forced them into it. So what what would be an example how you, you're not on the ambulance anymore now, and it's interesting you do the bereavement group. I actually am on the ambulance. Oh, are you? So you're still working? Yep. Oh, good. Good for you. Part, part-time? Yep. Yep. Um, so when you get those calls, how do you approach them differently? I have a lot more empathy. Um, I understand that uh, psychological pain is very real and that there is such a thing uh, and that psychological pain is worse than physical pain in many regards. Uh, I understand people struggle uh, having been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder myself and anxiety and, and depression. Uh, I understand that a lot more. It's not a switch you can flip off uh, or flip on. Uh, and uh, it's difficult. It has to be okay in public safety to say I'm functional with all that. I've been successfully treated, and um, I lead a productive career, and I like to at least think that I contribute things uh, to the world. Well, you said two things. So one one is that so you you recognize in yourself that you're someone who continues to struggle with some mental health mental health diagnosis. I don't know if that's the right way to phrase it. Yeah. And also, what can you give me an example of how you might approach someone now? What are some of the things you say? Because I'll just tell you that one of the big concerns that like peer support team members or others that are concerned about someone is how to how to make how, how to frame those conversations and what what to say and what not to say. Right. Well, I think you know, just like anything else, if you can, um, you're you know you. Uh, asking about health, whatever that is about, may not be appropriate in every audience and every place. If I've had a heart attack, I might not want you to ask it in front of um, 
you know, 50 people at a roll call or something like that. Uh, so um, to police, fire, and EMS have what I call um, BSometers, right? You can bleep that out later, I guess. Um, I don't know if the FCC is listening. Um, but anyway, um, we know when somebody's not being genuine or sincere to us. Be sincere, be yourself, show empathy. If you don't really care, the other person knows it, especially responders, right? We can pick up on that pretty quick. So I, I think that's um, pretty much step one. I like to say things in terms of what I observe in somebody's behavior. You know, you've been showing up to work late lately. Uh, you're not uh, you're not shaving <laughs> anymore. Uh, that worries me. Are you okay? You know, and so if you say what you observe. So you give them a, a concrete idea of what you're picking up on. And then are you okay? Yeah. How are you doing? What's going on? Uh, let's have coffee. So to be fact-based in, uh, in your, I think that's a, um, I think when people, when a, let's say for an example, an officer dies by suicide. I know, I know that everyone wishes they had done something different. Um, what does doing something different look like? Well, the first thing I'd say about that is hindsight bias is really tough. Right. I mean, none of us have crystal balls, or at least mine doesn't work. I don't know about yours, but we can't look back uh, and say, oh, yeah, I should have, would have, could have, because that's what people do in my support group all the time. And I'll tell people, don't feel guilty, but you will anyway. So go ahead. Uh, you know, it's like parenting. We do the best we can with the information we have at the time. And we don't pick up on things. We make mistakes, whatever. The key is learning from them. And the woulda, shoulda, coulda's will get you, right? Give your, be, be kind to yourself, I would say. Uh, and, um, you know, what could I have done? What do people say? Well, I wish I would have picked up on the comments or the veiled comments. You know, I won't be here next week. Well, well, in hindsight, that makes sense. Or people make jokes out of it. We do that in public safety, right? We have the dark humor. I mean, like, what is a joke? What is not a joke? So you got to put it in context with everything else, right? There, maybe their appearance isn't uh, as good as it used to be as far as, no offense to anybody of the bad appearance, but, um, <laughs> um, you know, they're not taking care of themselves, laundering their clothes, things like that. Uh, you know, those kinds of things. Their work is suffering. They're taking chances on the job, Right. Uh, those that that are um, unnecessary or they wouldn't do for or they're cutting corners or or they're kind of ambivalent to what happens to them in a dangerous situation. Like I'm not seeking out to get hurt, but I don't care if I do, you know, and then you put all those things in. So it's that being looking for the clues. Right. It's detective work. It, it's psychological detective work. And you're trying to pick up on something, but it's not easy. That's the caveat. That's the problem. Right? Well, that's kind that you say it that way. And I think that's probably very helpful, especially the support group folks. Um, and also, too, people can hide their distress very well. And I think public safety workers can be very skilled at hiding their distress. They see it as a survival mechanism or a tool and such. Um, the, um, so they hide it well. It, it makes it harder to detect. I think it's nice that you say that, that uh, at least acknowledge that, try to be fact-based when you approach them. What, um, what do you think about the numbers? Um, how accurate are we about? What, do you, what can you tell us about law enforcement and the level of risk? As far as the percentages of, uh, I have all kinds of data. So uh, we could talk about the number of officers that 
report they have suicidal ideation, how many of those people with ideations have a plan, how many of them have access to the means of their plan, how many have attempted, and we can talk about how many have died. And I'm not sure that's a lot of stuff, but well, I don't know where you want to well, go. For how did you get that data? Um, well, the ideation, planning, et cetera, data, uh, I, get, I put out a survey. Uh, I put out a survey to uh, 29,000 people in Minnesota who had any kind of an EMS credential at all. And as you know, uh, many police, whether police law enforcement is required to get EMR, first responder, emergency medical responder now, uh, to get post-licensed. And I look for evidence of I, I, anybody who has EMR certification, EMT, paramedic. And then I asked, are you a police officer? Are you a firefighter? Are you a single role? So you you work strictly on the ambulance, uh, other uh, kind of a catch-all. And um, out of 29,000, we had 1,832 uh, responses. And that may sound like a low number, but if you run the statistics on that, that's a confidence level of 99% with a plus minus margin of error of 3%, which is pretty robust response. By the way, if you ever send out 29,000 emails, check with your ID department first because it will crash your computer. It was a good crash, but excessive amounts of data. So what did you learn about law enforcement in that? Um, well, uh, when I asked police officers in the, in the survey, uh, have you ever had suicidal ideation? 21.5% of them reported that they had. And that's compared to 5.6 to 13.5% uh, of the general population. So, 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 so compare those numbers for us. So um, what I did is I took 21.5% uh, of the law enforcement having suicidal thoughts. Uh, I tested against the lower end and the upper end of the um, general populations known through a national survey, so 5.6 to 13.5%. Then you run something, most people get bored when you talk statistics, right, but a two-tailed t-test uh, to see if it's significant. It is significant on both ends of that. So law enforcement has a significantly higher rate of suicidal ideation than the general population, but they're not alone. Uh, in fact, uh, paramedics, uh, have a higher rate, uh, and uh, fire departments at 21% too. And we're all in this together, really. Yeah, well, how do you account for that? As far as? Well, why, why do you think we have a higher rate? Um, I think, well, my dissertation actually explored this, and I looked at emergency responders in general and their suicide rates. I split it into police, fire, and EMS, and I used, um, I looked at uh, evidence of um, trauma and et cetera, and I compared them to the public and responders who died of natural, because I took responders who died of suicide, compared it to the general population who died of suicide, and responders who died of natural causes. So I, I compared within our ranks and outside of our ranks. Um, but the, the interesting thing was I did something called the propensity score matching, which there's no quiz on that later uh, for anybody out there. Uh, thank goodness, because it, it chopped five years of my well, life. Well, I know you're apologizing for this, but I, I appreciate that, that you hold it in high re of high importance. Yeah, like no, it is, it, it is really. But, um, you know, sometimes people's eyes glaze over and they start drooling on themselves <laughs> when you're talking about statistics, right? Well, but you're reassuring us that the data, that what you're talking about is good information. 
Yeah, I think it's very accurate. And what I found out when I did that propensity score matching and looked at suicide rates, um, whether you were a firefighter or a police officer, it didn't matter as far as the suicide rates went uh, in comparison to those other groups. What matters is that you respond to medicals. It's the EMS part of the job because when you compare them with paramedics, EMTs, et cetera, that are single role. And that makes a certain sort of intuitive sense to a large degree uh, because um, you're not getting as much, you, you don't really don't get psychological trauma from the law enforcement and fire job um, until usually it involves somebody getting hurt or killed. Right. Yeah. Think of all I don't, those I don't know if that's true. I would think of some of the biggest harm in the job is, is well, maybe the slow death then because just neglect and inattention to children, um, people that live in squalor, uh, just that old term. Um, but maybe you're right. I mean, maybe it's the injured, injured individual and all that or child. I guess that's injured too. It's, it's, it's really about people in pain or harm. So I, I think so our definitions your... fit nice together, really. Yeah. Um, so that is what, to clarify, I think we're agreeing. I think we're saying it different. Well, I guess my point of view, so you might be right, um, is that uh, like like big urban police departments, Minneapolis, St. Paul, they routinely do not go to medical facilities. Right. They just are not, they don't, that's not part of their role. However, they see plenty uh, sick and injured people and traumatized people and people are victim of violence and all that too. So in fact, on uh, the other day I was out in the patrol capacity Oops. and uh, <laughs> in, in a one hour time span, I was with a group of officers that were at the site of a guy that had, you know, leapt off a bridge to his death and landed on the ground. And then within an hour, another group of officers was with someone that had been run over by the light rail train. It's exactly, that's exactly right though, Brian. I mean, that's exactly what we're, we're talking about as human. We, we all respond to calls, but we all have a different role, right? I mean, we can agree with that, but law enforcement, fire, EMS, all respond, but we're all responding to things like that. Maybe not, you don't go to every medical that I would go to. Uh, maybe I don't go to every law enforcement call, uh, but the ones where we do come together are those ones that are usually violence or a person hurt I, I, or hurt sick or a, something that affects somebody. I'm, I'm tracking with you on that because when you think about, so cops don't go to Minneapolis, St. Paul to uh, elderly people with broken hip calls. Correct. Because, and, and those calls aren't necessarily that mentally or emotionally impactful, but you're right. We all kind of gather at the people that leap out of buildings and the homicides, homicides and, and, and children that are harmed and such. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So I guess it's, you know, how you think about it or how you approach it. Um, but yeah, so the, the being, it's not that you can't get traumatized from something else, but uh, 14 and a half years of firefighter almost, I didn't get traumatized when I was a building and contents fire and nobody was hurt. <laughs> right. I mean, right. it's unfortunate. I feel bad for a family. I certainly do. Uh, they're displaced, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But it's when somebody gets hurt, that's when it ratchets up that stress, right? Or dies. When, if you asked any group of public safety workers, uh, what are the, what's the calls that are still with you? They're always going to have a narrative like that mm -hmm. of some, some gore or surprise or, um, somebody innocent involved maybe. 
Yeah, it's it's probably not going to be somebody stole a car unless they stole a car and hurt somebody with it, right? I mean, I'm I'm guessing. I'm not a I'm not a law enforcement officer, and I don't play on one on TV. But I, I I'm going to go out on a limb and say. Well, probably. but this is why this is really interesting to me because I hadn't thought of it from that perspective, and I, I'm I'm somewhat interested in what the cause is, but I'm also interested in the solution. But part of the solution maybe is how do you. Uh, shield yourself how do you minimize the harm from these jobs mm-hmm. and there are things that we can do to minimize the harm our exposure to death and destruction when possible i mean some cops can't get past that but even those that are forced to have a close-up and personal interaction with that sometimes they navigate that by saying well i have a higher sense of purpose here this is my part of my role this is a job that i I mean, even paramedics as well. This is a job that only I can do, and I have to do it well, despite its um, its painful parts of it and all that. So interesting. So that's okay. So that's one of the findings you found is that, the, irrespective of discipline, it's really the medical piece, the EMS piece is the that's the tie that binds us together as far as psychological trauma goes. And of course, it's much more than that. Uh, people, officers don't suicide just because of one thing. In fact, very few people do. It's that perfect storm. And, and you mentioned purpose. I can spend a half hour just on purpose. Don't worry, everybody. I won't. Um, but, uh, when we, our purpose protects us and when we lose it, we're in danger. That's why people who retire are a particularly vulnerable period, right? Especially people who wrap themselves all up in their profession. Like so many of us do. Uh, if I'm not, uh, law enforcement officer anymore if I'm not a firefighter if I'm not a paramedic well now what am I well I like I like that theme though and I and we won't spend a lot of time on it but I'm glad that's important I mean that you recognize that because this sense of hopelessness or helplessness or worthlessness I mean those are really alarming alarming topics if it was somebody and, and you and you've probably participated in debriefings either as a you know leading them or participating in them as a uh, in whatever the uh Sometimes a theme comes up uh, with the groups, and that is a sense of hope. Uh, uh, you know, they, they couldn't they couldn't fix a problem. They you know they it's felt worthless. Or, yeah, yeah, and I think it's their purpose got shaken. You know, they couldn't stop a bad thing from happening. Or well, I, I you know I'm I just on my own reflections as a uh, responder and um, and friends and my grandfather was a law enforcement officer. He was on the state patrol for 32 years, but, um, just watching him and interacting with him, uh, I will say that we're fixers, right? I just ask everybody out there listening to kind of reflect and I'm, I'm betting you for the majority of you, it's true that if your spouse, significant other friend, whoever has a problem, what do we want to do? We want to come in and we want to fix it. That's what we do, right? And when we can't fix it, then that's frustrated. And we feel hopeless. We mm-hmm. feel helpless. And, and those are precursors to losing purpose. In fact, we do some, my, my uh, nonprofit does something called psychological autopsy. So we can reconstruct suicides after they happen. And we look for evidence-based metrics of, of what that perfect storm was. And hopelessness is a precursor to purposelessness, closely related uh, for sure. Well, can you describe that perfect storm? What are some of the things you found? Yeah, well, I will. I will use an analogy uh, to describe that, and I'm I'm stealing this shamelessly. I guess it's not stealing when you credit your source. So, Iris Bolton is uh, a uh, 
suicidologist, uh, a very um, well-known one, and her son died of suicide. But uh, what she says, and I'm going to just, I've made my own little modifications. Um, imagine out there that you have a glass that's empty and that, um, that glass uh, starts to fill up with water. The drops in the glass are things that are going on with you in your life. So uh, you have a genetic history of suicide in your family. For example, Ernest Hemingway had on the order of eight suicides in his family, if you're familiar with him, the famous writer. Uh, and on and on and on. My own family's got more than one. So put a drop of water in. Uh, you struggle with depression. Number one mental health issue associated with suicide. Put a drop of water in. You have an adverse childhood event, ACE, a high ACE score. And, and for, you can go out online and take an ACE score yourself. Hardly anybody's going to come out unscathed, right? In fact, responders self-select into this profession, and we tend to have higher ACE scores. Uh, so we'll have to explore what that means later. No, I believe that's true. Yep. Um, so you put that drop of water in. Uh, you're in a bad car accident. You have chronic pain. People, people in chronic pain are th uh, two to three times more likely to die of suicide. So you put a drop of water in the glass and you lose your job and put another glass of water in the glass. And pretty soon it fills up all the way to the top, but it's not overflowing. It's just like right there at the edge, right? And then your significant other breaks up with you and the last drop goes in and overflows all over the place. And then we blame the last drop. We totally forgot about everything in there. And of course, work trauma and our calls are a big part for us as responders too. Uh, and compassion, fatigue, all these other things, right? It's even the routine stuff that wears on you that can fill up that cup. Uh, and that's what it's really about. It's the perfect storm. Everybody's ingredients are a little bit different. You and I um, lose our jobs. You're devastated. I'm like, woohoo, I get the day off work tomorrow, right? Uh, my significant other leaves me. Yours leaves you. I'm bummed out. You're like, yeah, I get the bed to myself, right? Um, so you know, life's objective. We call that phenomenology. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good. It's good that you pointed that out, that we like to, I think it's, it's dangerous when we find easy answers to things we don't understand. And I think that that's just not helpful either too. So really interesting. You said, so we, we tend to focus on the last thing, for, um, which that helps my thinking too, because I, I recognize some, you know, for lack of better terms, red flags, a significant relationship breakup. I mean, I worry about certain cops all the time mm -hmm. that I interact with. And, uh, and I'm sure you know people as well. Uh, and then if you're alerted to a particular event or something, that heightens your alertness or your concern because maybe their baseline is a little compromised, you know? Yeah, what, what does somebody normally act like and, and what are they doing now? But what else do they have going on in their life and there's so many things, I mean, you, you, there's things that your family knows about you that your friends don't know, that there's things that friends know about you that your family doesn't know, things that work knows about you that nobody here, you know, so we only, we're very careful. Everybody does this. We compartmentalize, right? I mean, that's why, that's why detectives in, uh, <laughs> interview lots of people that knew, knew the situation from different angles, right? You find mm -hmm. out information. Right. Uh, well, our lives are no differently when it comes to our, our personal lives. And uh, maybe we struggled financially over here and somebody knew that. Maybe over here we're going through relationship problems. Maybe we struggle with um, substance use. Uh, you know, that's all too common amongst emergency responders of every ilk. 
uh, you know, the, all those things could be going on and you have depression and, and we just, it's that so, perfect storm. So you're convincing me a bit that, uh, um, let me, let's not focus too much on the individual first responder, the actual work, whether a firefighter, ambulance worker, EMS or law enforcement. I guess one difference with law enforcement though, is that the, uh, the access to the lethal means yes. with them all the time. Yep. The means. And when I, crunch the, the data and the death records, uh, 95% of police officers who died by suicide uh, in Minnesota used a, a firearm. Sure. Uh, but that shouldn't be a surprise, obviously. Sure. Um, but nonetheless, but that is the most common uh, method used uh, nationally in, in our state, too. This is done a lower percentage amongst the general population, uh, but still number one means. What about, uh, is there a part of suicide that's uh, impulsive? You know, that's a question that we debate at suicidology conference when the suicidologists get together. Uh, you know, I don't, people will say suicide is impulsive. Like it came out of the blue. It came out of nowhere. The research is actually pretty clear that retrospectively, most people gave clues. They're just so subtle. You didn't pick up on them. Right. And you could many times you couldn't have. Um, so the research does show that most people think about suicide for months to years before it happens. But I think the impulsive part is this is the moment. This is right now. And that's minutes, usually to hours. Like yeah. this is it. This is the time. But you've been thinking about it for quite some time. It's not a static proposition, say uh, suicidal thoughts on a zero to ten scale. 10 is like the worst suicidal thoughts you could have. Like I'm, I am going to kill myself and zero is, uh, no, I'm not for sure. Uh, you know, it's not like a five all the time. Sometimes it's a four for three hours, three days, and then it goes up to a seven, then it goes down to a two, then it's a zero. Um, and that's why time is our friend in suicide prevention, especially amongst people who use more lethal means. Because their, their suicidality, if you will, or their suicidal thoughts ebb and flow. And if you can restrict that means for a little while, um, that can be the time that you need uh, to intervene. And, and suicide is not a foregone conclusion. That's a myth. Um, it's a major myth. What is a major myth? Uh, that suicide is a foregone conclusion that once somebody's got their main mind, mind made oh. up, that they're going to do it. In fact, 50% of people who attempt suicide, um, die by suicide within five years. But if you're a glass half full person, 50% of people who attempt suicide do not die by suicide in five years. So statistics are a blessing and a curse. You have to look at them multiple ways and from different angles uh, to not take away just the worst out of it, right? You have to always look at things. Um, and then people also believe that, oh, if I take away a method, that they'll just find some other way to do it. That's been debunked too uh, through research, uh, and I could go into that if you want to know how we know that. But um, it's if you take away one method, they're not just going to find another method. That's been disproven because that that method was part of a maybe a story they were telling themselves or a plan they had. So without that, it just doesn't. It's not as appealing to them or something. Yeah, I don't know the mechanisms behind that. That would be a great makings for sure. future research. Um, you know. Um, but I do know that in 
there's suicide hotspots in the world, if you will, where a lot of suicides happen. Right. And um, internationally, the number one suicide spot in the whole world is the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. That's pretty well known. Uh, what most people think is there's uh, people travel there from around the world in the country to jump off. They don't. It's the folks from California. It's the people from the San Francisco Bay area. It's not people from around the world. Um, how do we know that suicide's not a foregone conclusion? Well, we look at the Eiffel Tower, the uh, Sydney Harbor Bridge, and we look at the Empire State Building. All of those were places where a lot of suicides occurred. No more. Uh, but what did people? What did they do? Uh, they put up barriers to prevent people from jumping. And if the if it's true that suicides are uh, well, somebody who d tries suicide will just try another way if you interrupt them, then you would expect the suicides in those cities to at least stay the same, right? I mean, you're not going to go down for sure. In every one of those cities, suicides went down. Remember the lesson from the Golden Gate Bridge is mostly the residents and people of California going there. So it's protecting the citizens. Uh, and they're there, so the, and the rates are going down. So that's how we know it's not necessarily a foregone conclusion. Yeah, and to act locally, I guess, which is what well, we can only do. What did, um, is it is it Kevin Hines? Oh, yeah. Is it Kevin? Yeah, I've met Kevin. Um, you did? Yeah. My God, what a blessing to meet that man. So his story is that, that he, 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 he was one of the, what, what percent that survived jumping off the Golden handful. Gate Bridge? And then there was that related study that they interviewed the survivors they were able to locate and... All of them said that their instant first thought was regret. Do you agree with that? I don't know if all of them, but certainly remember there's only a handful too. Yeah. So the data is kind of, you know, take it as you will. Right. But it's interesting. And Kevin certainly said that. Um, I've uh, had a chance to talk to him. You could read his book called Crack Not Broken. I highly right. recommend it. And there's a movie called The Ripple Effect, sure. uh, which is excellent. The I'm going to actually on our, our training that we're doing Wednesday, I'm going to, I've got a short video of his that I'll show. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so Kevin did say as soon as he let go of those rails, he knew instantly that he'd made a mistake. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was almost like something jarred him. Uh, you know, maybe that breaks the suicidal impulse. We'll never know in a lot of people, unfortunately. Of not, yeah. We just won't know. But it is interesting. Uh, I guess what I took from that is just the um, importance not being so, I don't know if this is the right word, fatalistic about people that attempt or have that ideation because they can get to a better spot often. Oh, yeah. It doesn't mean they're going to die. No. For sure. Uh, and it's only Whether it's physical barriers, uh, time is your friend. Yep. Um, Safekeeper programs for firearms. If, you're, if your buddy uh, has a firearm and you think that person is a risk to themselves, you know, everybody gets worried about having their firearms taken away. And of course, for law enforcement, that's extremely bad for employment <laughs> prospects, right? So um, maybe somebody's uh, firearm can be held by a good friend until the danger is passed. And you work with a mental health professional that they're seeing to know when you can give that firearm back. Now, there's a little trick here for law enforcement, but for the general um, public who have firearms, that might be a way to do it. There's gun locks, you know, and Anything. With law enforcement, it's actually a fascinating. I recently saw some city that was experimenting with that. And there might have been a European city where they actually sign out their firearms anyway. I mean, which is a bizarre thought. Canada that, does that. Uh, U.S. cops. 
because cops like to have their firearm going back and forth to work, and they've got a number of firearms at home and such. Um, but you could see that that could be a huge benefit to somebody. And, and it, it is possible. We could work it even in our in U.S. law enforcement. You know? I'm sure that would be a subject highly debated because yeah, <laughs> right, you can hear way. both. I mean, you can obviously see both sides of that, um, the, the pros and the cons of that. Um, so, so let me backtrack and ask, what, what do we know about suicide and suicide prevention? What do, what do you know? What do you have, can say with a lot of confidence? Uh, I can say it's higher in the United. It's in the United States is only one of nine countries going the wrong way in suicides. Uh, I can say there's serious cultural tendrils to suicide. It's not just about mental illness. Uh, I can say that there are things proven uh, to prevent suicide, and that if you had, if you only could pick one, I would say. Pick social connection. It's huge. Uh, you know, uh, make sure people feel like they belong, that they're not a burden. Uh, the UK has taken this very seriously. They now have a minister of loneliness. Um, think about all the calls we get, though. Think about all the calls. How many of those calls are people who are lonely? Well, um, Dr. Lloyd is somebody I work with, uh, works through Health Partners, and she has she's talked about that curriculum as well about speaking directly about the issue of loneliness. So you said the uh, culture, well, did I interrupt you? Did you have some other no, ones? No, so, I mean, I have lots of things I could download so, forever, but. <laughs> well, so the culture, you said there's some cultural, uh, how did you word it? Cultural tendrils. Okay. Uh, I don't know what that means, but the, uh, um, so the cultural part, what cultures are you describing? Does that include work cultures too? Oh, absolutely. Uh, culture, culture. A lot of people think of culture as skin color, religion, you know, ethnicity, things like that, and, and that's true. Sure, those are different cultures, uh, but so too there is emergency responder culture, military culture, police culture, et cetera, et cetera. Well, so absolutely. Well, let's talk about some of those cultural things. And, yeah. and what you already mentioned is um, the adverse childhood experience, the ACE study. Um, there is a score that can be associated with that. It's a really well-recognized, validated study with a lot of good data. Um, and that some of some of public safety workers, that's how they navigate maybe or how they try to resolve some of their adverse childhood experiences is go into the work that we do. And some navigate that just fine and may actually parlay or leverage that experience to be really effective in their jobs and have happy full careers. Others probably don't, you know. So that might be part of the culture. What other things stand out as far as cultural things for public safety workers that might contribute? You know, I think adverse adversity to help seeking is a big thing. What, is, what do you mean so adversity? So people um, don't want to get help because it's not oh. culturally acceptable to get help. Um, so people just like to throw that in the category of stigma. Yeah, which I would tell you stigma to me means discrimination. Try that on for size. Well, discrimination. That. that sounds like um, a good one. You know, what is stigma? Fear plus ignorance is what Thomas Joyner, a uh, researcher, says. But I, but I think it's also just discrimination um, because uh, you have a mental health problem. Uh, you know, here's an example. I just pulled this up on my, on my handy. Day. According to a survey uh, of responders. 
Please fire EMS, everybody. Uh, 55% say their supervisor will treat them differently if they bring up mental health concerns at work. 45% say their coworkers will perceive them as weak if they bring up mental health concerns at work. And 34% say bringing up mental health concerns at work will cause harm them to be looked uh, harm to them to be looked over for promotions. 39% overall say that there's negative repercussions for seeking mental health uh, help at work. And that's a, a study done by the University of Phoenix in 2017. Uh, I think it's um, very profound. I have a little cartoon I'm looking at here too. It, um, basically, it's an emergency vehicle and it says, I will not be allowed to save lives if I asked help for help to save mine. And I think that's part of the we need to be more embracing. Yeah. Uh, and um, 50, 50% of us in the United States have a diagnosable mental health disorder, according to the National Institute for Mental Health. We just haven't been diagnosed. And one in, I believe it's five, uh, have a mental health disorder. One in five, uh, 20%. Yeah. And 50%. Have probably are estimated to have a mental health issue, but they are not diagnosed. And what, what would be an example at the low end, like adjustment disorder or uh, a phobia or? Yeah, well, it depends. I mean, if you're, I mean, really the definition. Um, I feel like I'm talking to the preaching to the choir here because you know, um, but the definition of a mental health disorder is anytime something meets the uh, constellation of criteria, plus it is a, a problem at work, home or for people in school, at school. So yeah. where you work, play, live, uh, that kinds of things. And that, so a phobia could disrupt that. I mean, if you're afraid to even go outside, I mean, that's pretty bad. But yeah, just the, the minor ends, there's, there's mild um, depression, uh, anxiety. We all get anxiety at some points. Maybe it's public speaking or something like that. Uh, and, I, and I hesitate to say that's a mental Right, it's, uh, um, but it's the common cold of mental health issues. Right, I guess. right. Difference between an illness and a mental, and just um, something makes you nervous. We all get sure, nervous. Sure. No, I, I was just think. saying that the range. I mean, yeah, for the listeners to go fifty percent, we recognize that some are yeah, some mildly are, distressed by that, where others yeah. are incapacitated and homebound at best. Yeah, know? some have moderate depression. Sure, uh, some have um, some uh, mild anxiety. Um, then there's eating disorders. Sure. And, I get it now. Uh, yeah. Schizophrenia, of course, is one of the ins most now insidious. Now you start to go that 50% without. It's pretty remarkable when you start to know all the possibilities. Right. Now you said that when you said that, um, uh, the stigma and you started to read the list and you were looking at some data there. One of them that I, I mean, each of those would be kind of an interesting to talk about and kind of push and pull on some of them. But one was, um, that their supervisor would think less of them. And one thing that I've recognized was supervision. Supervision is powerfully important in these jobs, uh, public safety jobs. I think ambulance work probably has the least supervision that I can think of as far as you don't, you don't have a, you know, every cop has a sergeant, every patrol cop has a sergeant and they interact with them a couple times a day. Uh, firefighters usually work within a command structure EMS workers, I'm not so sure, you know, wh where you interact with a supervisor. Depends, of course. But one part is that I know that sometimes supervisors don't act or act incorrectly, not because they don't give a damn, not because they don't care. They just don't know what to do or they are 
misguided and, and they think that they need to be um, just give a come to Jesus speech and come down hard or this or that. But I think often it is they don't know what to do. And I think that's one of the things that we don't, in all these work environments, I think supervisors could really benefit from this, how you navigate these situations. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, we, Whether it's alcohol misuse or um, job disillusionment or anger outbursts or relationship disillusion, not, not that supervisors and it should be so involved in people's personal lives because they shouldn't, but they need to be responsive to signs of distress in the workplace. Well, you, there's other things. Work, as you know, bleeds over into home life often. And home life can bleed over into work. Uh, so I think the savvy supervisor recognizes that. Not being intrusive. You know, I, 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 when I teach students and one suddenly starts performing not as well as they normally do, one of the first questions I like to ask them is, what's going on? I mean, because normal, this isn't you. I mean, normally you're really on it. You have good grades. You're on time, and you can draw the parallels to work. But maybe it's just that genuineness. Like, are you okay? I mean, like, really, what's going on? Can I help you with something? You're not yourself. You're, you're and again, point out the things you see, and uh, let them know you're there, and be and not and and don't do don't be one of the fifty five percent who treats somebody differently or that kind of thing. What, what you're saying to me makes me think this. Um, like even following a critical incident, for example. So in our industry, it's a slightly different in law enforcement than what I related to it when I was a paramedic. But a significant traumatic event, maybe in law enforcement, we, we actually cause part of the event, part of our duty, our, our, our duty and such. But... Supervisors show up on calls or are aware of events that take place for firefighters, law enforcement, EMS. And I say, well, you want to ask, are you okay, but you want to go beyond that. And um, I think one thing that's really important is taking people aside in a private situation where you're not distracted and can't run away from uncomfortable conversations because, you know, just asking, are you okay? I get why people do that. It's a signal that I care and I'm interested, or I recognize that you may have been harmed by something, or you may be suffering. Right. But rarely would I really expect in most environments a very honest answer. It's like saying, how you doing in the hallway? And exactly. the person says, you just, yeah, if somebody I'm, says, I'm doing crappy, then you, and the person's like, oh, good, and walks yeah. on. Because <laughs> right. they didn't really expect right. it. Or, 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 or if you're that person that's feeling crappy, you like evaluate, do I really, oh, no, I'll, I'll just, I'll just lowball it and say, good, I'm fine, that type of stuff, which is fine too, because in work environments are primarily workplaces. And it's important that people attend to their okay. responsibilities. But I think in public safety work, uh, we're aware that um, harm comes our way in little different packages and mm. surprises and painful events. And that's part of the, part of the work. I think supervisors can do well by, well, we can talk more about that. So what else do we know about? What else, uh, or, or any, what, what may, may I or others be surprised to know? Um, about myths, misconceptions. Uh, myths, misconceptions. Um, of course, there's the talking to somebody about suicide or asking them if they're suicidal. Uh, we'll make them do it. Um, nobody has that kind of power, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm 
very much hoping you're not suicidal. And if you're not, and I say, Brian, are you thinking of killing yourself? Me asking you that can't make you suicidal, right? Uh, but if you're um, vulnerable and you're already thinking of suicide, well, you're already thinking of it. So <laughs> how can I make you, I'm making you think about something you're already thinking about. So the logic doesn't stand up. So that's, you know, one of the myths. So what you just did there rolled off your tongue in a very, uh, that flowed very easily for you. Mm-hmm. Many, many of us would convert that. You're not thinking about hurt. Uh, you're not thinking about doing I've heard Cardinal the, I've, sin. Yeah. I've heard you say this phrase as an example. You're not, you're not, a, not thinking of doing something stupid. Are you? Right. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't certainly approach that. I have a different experience with this topic, but I get why people get weak in the knees it's hard. Even even if it's not the issue that somehow saying it will cause it, say they don't believe that. It's just that that's a hard conversation. And I notice a big thing um, for a lot of people that are do-gooders like us is um, it's our own discomfort that gets in the way of really listening to people, really talking honestly to them, that type of stuff. So. Think that fix it, and we might not be able to if you tell me yes. Oh my God! Well, that's I think why we do platitudes. Like if someone's really upset, we'll just try to talk them out of being upset because we want seeing them upset makes us feel upset, right? You know, um, it's a, it's remarkable. Um, I imagine paramedics and firefighters are the same is how we don't apply what we do in the street to each other very well. Sometimes we have to take care of ourselves before we help everybody else. Yeah, and, you know, you. You listen to the flight attendant probably, and when they say put your own oxygen mask on, I mean, I hope people aren't getting a chance to practice this. I say this a week before a flight, but um, I will definitely put my own oxygen mask on before I help the person next to me, right? And shouldn't we be doing that too? Because if we're not well, even just from a practical standpoint, how can you help other people? Well, okay, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, Protective factors are a huge issue because you said all the, you you gave the example, the drips of the water and then maybe a big gush of water with a relationship breakup or a job loss. But there's also things that we do um, that really advantage us in many ways. Yes. And, um, And they're like protective factors. And you mentioned one, if you said, if I could name just one issue, it would be good social connections and such. We can't overstate how powerfully important that is. Um, I've thought that one of the protective factors from going to work on a daily basis, even from the harm that comes with psychological trauma, the inevitable exposure to the suffering of others and such, we may even willfully and eagerly go to some of that because we feel like we that's part of what we do for a living or we can contribute. But I put it this way. Um, ideally, you go to work well-fed, well-rested, and well-loved so that hopefully you can, any of the harm that comes your way is, has less of an impact. And, and well-rested is literally enough sleep. I mean, when I talk to officers in distress and they're not sleeping, meaning they're getting a couple hours a night, I mean, that is really alarming, as you might imagine. And sometimes you wonder if they're going to need to get hospitalized. Sleep is super important. In fact, sleep is highly correlated with a variety of mental health problems. But think about it. What happens when an enemy captures soldiers? What is the first thing they do to those prisoners? They usually sleep deprive them, right? right. It's torture. Right. It is torture. Uh, and sl- lack of sleep is highly correlated to suicide. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we know in the educational environment that sleeping burns memories, experiences to your, uh, from your random access memory floating around, your short-term memory to your hard drive. Right. Uh, we know that it gets rid, you process toxins. Uh, and oh, there's a lot goes on when you're sleeping. Lots. Wow. Yeah. You know, and turns out it's important. <laughs> you can't feel normal and think normally six or less hours of sleep. I want to say seven, but I'm afraid to go that because too many people go that. But um, let me ask you something about, tell me if you think my thinking's right. Is that you, you listen probably to people differently than many. I know I do because of the work I do. I actually feel like I see distress a lot earlier than some people do because I'm really tuned into that and I pay attention to it. And I've seen talk to enough cops in distress to see what they're not paying attention to and helping them see that. And they're like, okay, this is, that's helpful and useful, that type of stuff. Right. Um, do you differentiate in my book? I differentiate the difference between thoughts of suicide, suicide intention and suicide attempt. Yes. Suicide intention or attempt to me are automatic crisis. Mm -hmm. Some action has to be taken. Thoughts of suicide, that's where I really want to soften that for, for cops, especially cops as opposed to, that's the audience I work with, is um, that it doesn't mean I'm going to, if you express a thought of a suicide, a lot of humans have thoughts of suicide. The response should not be throwing net on them. It should be more conversation. And if you, you've got adolescent children, uh, my kids are older now, but you know, when they tell you something shocking or surprising, you didn't want to react to it because then they would shut down. So you just basically underreact so that the more conversation continues, but you paid attention to it. Sure. You either readdressed it later or right then. So is that a fair or different? Is that how you categorize or subdivide? Yeah, I agree. Um, now, I'm just going to, so I'm not so sad, but I'm going to give you an example. And I'm guessing that some of the audience is going to resonate with this more than we'll even say. So you go up to a really high place. There's a rail. Or you're in a hotel. You look over the atrium. Has anybody ever had that wonder what it would feel like to jump? You had no intention. You knew darn well you weren't going to do it. Or am I the only one? I don't know. It doesn't mean I'm suicidal. You wonder, though. It's like, what would that experience be like? Um, and, and in fact, I've, I've heard other researchers talk about that. Is it, is it passive ideation? Um, at one point in my own severe depression, I, I just went to bed hoping I didn't wake up. Didn't mean I was going to act on it, you know. It's an ambivalence, right? So if I have a heart attack in my sleep, what is that? You know, what is that? There's these what varying hear, levels. What I hear in that too is, um, and I imagine that question in this conversation is very different to someone who deals with suicide thoughts daily. Yes. Or has had long, prolonged periods or att past attempts and such. But I also hear in that a little bit of humans going, this is what I'm capable of. This is, I have enough power and my own intentions and abilities that I can, I could throw myself off this if I wanted to or, or needed to. Right. I think um, one thing that I just want to say 
because you acknowledge the audience, which I appreciate, and that is um, one, one of my deepening understandings of this topic was that people did not necessarily want to die. They just wanted to stop the mental or emotional or physical pain. And, and, it, and it made sense to them. And that's why I really believe I, I have this much respect for anyone who suffers that sometimes suicide can make sense, can make perfect sense to them. I think what we want to do as far as prevention is try to keep it from making sense or literally in that moment, break that thinking cycle. I mean, I've been with people who, as a police officer, I've been on the other side of railings where people are threatening to take their own life. And part of that is you want a little bit interrupt their thinking. Yeah. You Establish know. a rapport is the first thing you want to do with them, right? Right. Well, and I think, um, I, I will tell you that sometimes cops will obsess about establishing a rapport and they fixate on getting the person's name. Right. And that doesn't, person doesn't want to give their name. And I remember in one case, I remember I didn't even, this guy wasn't going to give us his name. And I thought, fine, I, I'm, I don't want, that's fine. I don't need your name. And then something really interesting happened to me in that situation, the one I'm thinking of, is that it occurred to me that I couldn't, I'm talking about someone that was threatening to leap from a bridge and they were on the other side of the railing just hanging on and I was on the other side in a safe spot. It occurred to me that there was nothing I could do to keep them from taking their own life. There was nothing, literally, there was nothing. As soon as I kind of came to terms with that, as the public safety worker, as the cop, there was kind of a calmness came over me because I knew I had really no control over this situation. The, only, so, the only thing you can do is save them at that point by establishing a rapport, right? Right. And, and he wasn't giving his name to the other officer. I thought, that's fine. You know, I'm, I don't need your name. Figure it out. And then, uh, and then eventually a rapport was established and it turned out good. But it was kind of a uh, letting go, not a grabbing on. I like that. You know, and you're right. Um, a lot of times that sudden trying to grab on or whatever puts other people's lives in jeopardy and actually uh, spurs an action. And it's kind of counterintuitive, actually. It is counterintuitive. And that's why this whole topic, I, I think I can tell with you and with my own kind of understanding is deep, your un deep in your understanding. And, and you said empathy. Um, for me, it's more just deepening your respect for those that are suffering. And uh, so let's do this, if you don't mind. Um, let's, let's, uh, let me just uh, end with this um, before we go. Um, if you've enjoyed this podcast, uh, you might be interested in my book. And it's called Good Cop, Good Cop, A Get Healthy, Stay Healthy Guide for Law Enforcement. And it's got a lot of what we talked about here today and other number of other topics as well. Um, and you can find out more about the book. You can order it on Amazon, or you can find more about information about it at goodcopgoodcop.com. Let's end here, Chris. I will bring, bring you back. Um, but thank you so much for uh, doing the work you're doing, uh, getting to where you are the hard way, and turning your own experience and suffering into something really useful to others. I'm sure you do that because it gives you some sense of purpose and joy but uh, you've made some big sacrifices to uh, bring this message out, and, and I'm glad you're doing it. Thank you. It is my purpose. Tell me, tell, uh, describe, uh, let everybody hear what your organization is or how people would contact you. Okay, so uh, my organization is the Minnesota Center of Suicidology. Uh, we just recently went through a name change. It was the Stroop Calkin Center for Suicide Research. 
We're a 501c3. We do uh, consultation, research, policy, advisement, and educating on suicide and suicide prevention. Uh, you can, uh, we've got a new website that'll be up and running soon. Uh, I'm going to screw it up probably, but I believe it's MN uh, Suicidology, S-U-I-D-O-L-O-G.org. Uh, and uh, you can you can reach out to us there. Um, you can also Google my name and I'm sure it'll pop up. Uh, we have a Facebook page as well. Like us there. That's a good way to stay in touch of everything we do. Uh, and we, we kind of post where we are. We're actually presenting on uh, emergency responder suicide in Ireland next week at the International Association for Suicide Prevention. So um, we'll, we'll continue that work, some research. Work. Well, I know there's a lot of people interested in this topic. There's a lot of misinformation uh, about and mis-messaging about some of this information. So I'm glad that people hear your voice. And people can look you up as well. Chris Culkins, it's C-A-U-L-K-I-N-S. It's it, like Macaulay, but there's an S on the end of it and a whole lot less money. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Yep, thank you.